0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my
1: drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony, your host of Rebel Girls Book Club, and I'm very excited because today I have a special guest. Her name is Cassandra Lane. And she is the author of a new memoir called We Are Bridges. Cassandra, do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself and your book? Absolutely. Hi, Harmony. It's so
0: great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I am a Louisiana transplant, I'll start there because that's where my roots are, in Los Angeles. I've been in Los Angeles 20 years as of this year. And I I started off as a a journalist, but I always wanted to write books. As a kid, I told my mom that I would write books and I wanted to stay behind the scenes because I was so timid. But I loved, loved, loved reading, loved stories. And then once I became a senior in high school, I thought, oh, let me find a practical way way to enter the writing world. And as far as everything that I knew, it was journalism. I had one older cousin who had majored in photojournalism and was working as a photojournalist at the New Orleans newspaper. And so I said, okay, well, that's one. He was just very supportive. I went to the same school he went to. I didn't know to, you know, apply anywhere else. And I majored in print journalism, but almost got a double major in English literature because I loved my literature classes so much. My goal was to work as a journalist and then at night somehow write books. And that, of course, was very challenging <laughs> Of all the long hours spent in the newsroom, I did finally, around 30, make the decision to leave the newsroom full time. I started freelancing and uh, working on my creative work. I was part of this amazing creative writing workshop in New Orleans and working on my work, getting out into the public, reading that work, hearing all these amazing poets and writers read and perform their work was very much affirming and helped me make that decision to leave journalism full-time. I moved to Los Angeles in 2001 and enrolled in the MFA program at Antioch in creative nonfiction. And that's when I started writing really the first seeds of this book that finally published 20 years later, We Are Bridges. And I'm a mom. I have a 14-year-old. I have two bonus adult sons. Um, I'm married, I'm on my second marriage. And, you know, just I love LA. I love but I also love New Orleans. I love traveling. Everything that I see can be a potential story. And I just hope to write more books and that it doesn't take as long.
1: (laughs) Before we get I actually have a bit of a question about the length of the book. But before we get into that, can you give listeners just a short little summary about what this book is about?
0: Sure. So this book weaves the story of my ancestors, starting with my great-grandparents on the maternal side, my great-grandfather, Burt Bridges, and the love of his life, Mary McGee, whom I remember very well, because I was 11 um, before, she, before she died, and I ate her food, I loved her tea cakes, I remember her shooing away ghosts. Anyway, their love was cut short by the lynching of Burt Bridges. Circa 1904, she had one child, their child, who never met his, his father because he was lynched. That child was my mother's father. And when I was a little girl, I remember Papa, Papa Houston, sitting in his recliner after he retired from the woods just going over his entire life. And he would ultimately end in tears and talk about all, you know, things that had happened to him and end on that note that he never got to meet his real daddy, that he was lynched, that his stepfather was very abusive, unfortunately. And, as you know, it was, it was perplexing to me as a kid to see and, and hear this 80-something-year-old man crying about his father and all of these things that had happened in the past and I didn't understand. The other adults in the household just kind of went about their day kind of trying to ignore him because it was such a common occurrence. And then, some, you know, when I started looking at my own life as it relates to romance and race and racism, that's when I started connecting to what my grandfather must have been feeling and going through. And so the book weaves that ancestral story and loss with my own personal story of becoming a mother, of dealing with romance and broken romance and race and racism together.
1: Thank you for that. So why did it take you so long to write this book? Was there a particular reason why 2021 ended up being the year it got published?
0: I know, right? (laughs) Secret question. I think so much of it was emotional. It was just really hard to write certain parts of that story. I thought initially that it was just going to be about my great grandfather or or a character based on my great grandfather i was really obsessed with that the fact that that had happened in our family that it wasn't just some story you know or article that this had happened not really that long ago in terms of generations and i was really obsessed with that but at some point there were just no records i got stuck At the time, I wasn't planning on becoming a mom. Uh, And for some reason, I was really identifying with the men in the family. I think I saw the women as so overburdened with raising children and labor. And so my mind was made up that I wasn't going to become a mom. When that started changing for me in my Early to mid-30s is when I turned the lens from my great-grandfather to the women in the family and really considering how much, how strong they were and how resilient they were. Mary went on to live many decades uh, after Bert's lynching. She married, she was a farmer, she fed people who were far poorer than she was, she was a great storyteller, she was a great cook, and so I started really, the story became, it took on a bigger more layered frame. And I went through also a divorce, a really hard emotional, psychological experience. So I think, you know, so I wasn't consistently writing for 20 years, I would start and I would stop, I would go through my crap, I would go to therapy, I would journal I also am a full-time worker. I've always worked full-time, whether that was a t- as a teacher, as a reporter, as the community relations manager for the Dodgers, senior writer for a nonprofit. I've just always worked really hard. I'm now the editor of uh, LA Parent Magazine. And so that's just kind of the technical part. Like, I just don't have a lot of time. <laughs> and then I became a mom. So, so much of it, some of it was emotional. Some of it was just the lack of time. And... I would say the last part is that I love to revise and I sometimes get stuck in that revision phase because I can go over and over a sentence or paragraph.
1: There was something you said in your answer that I want to dive into further a little bit. You mentioned that you were at some points in your life really relating to the men in your family. And that's interesting to me because in your book, there is a line and I'm paraphrasing and probably Not getting it exactly right. But you mentioned how essentially the men in your family, you worried that they were cursed or something because a lot of them ended up perpetuating some sort of violence on their loved ones and a lot of them ended up unhappy. And so I'm interested in whether that connected to your ideas about relating to them.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I grew up in a very religious family and. I had seven uncles, and I would say half of them were our spiritual leaders, preachers of our small family church and some other community members too. And so you grow up as a child really idolizing these figures who also happen to be my blood family, my mother's brothers. She's the youngest. She's the only girl. And then as you get older, learning you know, some of their trials and tribulations. I was horrified to learn that my grandfather had physically abused my grandmother, whom I loved so, so dearly. So just trying to reconcile, you know, that kind of pain with what they had been through themselves because of what their country had put them through and trying to understand, you know, here are these people who were so beaten down or undervalued doing some similar, you know, things to people that they said that they loved. And, I, and it was coming alongside my own journey into why I was unhappy in love, even though I wanted to be happy or there were happy moments. I remember having, you know, ex-boyfriends and even my ex-husband saying, you just, it just seems like you can't be satisfied or you're, you can't be happy. You don't know how to be happy. And so I wanted, I wanted to have to be free of that. I wanted real joy, but I didn't want that surface kind of joy. I wanted to get underneath, you know, what the sadness was, dig that out, look at it, because I've, to me, my philosophy is that that's the only way you can have true joy, is to see what's blocking it. And of course, we're not we're not an island. We're tied to our histories. And for me, for this particular project, that history had to do with my maternal side of the family.
1: Did that affect at all? Spoilers for the book, in case readers haven't read it yet, but Cassandra ends up having a son and you seem to have some feelings about, oh, I really wanted a daughter. Did that have to do with this relationship to the men in your family?
0: Yeah, I just thought it would be easier To have a daughter, a Black daughter, not that Black women don't have a really hard time in this country and haven't historically had one. But, you know, for the most part, when you think historically about lynchings, when you think about police brutality, police killings, vigilante killings, it's usually, not always, but disproportionately Black men. So, one, there was a decision that I just felt, you know, just out of fear that if I were going to become a mom, that (laughs) not that you can control the gender of your child, but it would be so much easier to have a daughter, a black daughter, if you're going to have a child. I'd also seen my now husband, second husband, you know, all of the things that he'd been through as all the stories that he told me about things he'd been through as a child on the streets in LA. And then he has two older sons and similar struggles. So that scared me. And I think, you know, it it worried him too. He really wanted a daughter. He thought that it would be an experience that he would love and that it wouldn't be so hard. I also think that there were unhealed parts of me, my little girl self, that I thought I could take this young daughter and, you know, try to infuse her with the confidence I didn't have. So there were just all these things that you project onto your unborn child that, of course, are not fair. But those are some of the reasons why I thought. And then I had a dream about this little girl, so I just knew that it was going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. I don't know. But we did not have a girl.
1: (laughs) That kind of leads well into another question I had about your changing relationship into motherhood. Because in the book, that theme of wanting to heal your ancestral trauma through love and through raising a healthy family was very prevalent. So now that your son is a teenager now, how, how have things changed for you in terms of your perspective on that?
0: Well, I know that that's not completely possible, that all of us are going to go through whatever trials and tribulations we need to. I think that they can be lessened, though, with you know, awareness and with therapy. My son has been in therapy since he was 12. I remember the first appointment my husband and I took him to, he was so baffled. He was like, why am I going? He's a, he's a great kid. He's jolly. He's, he's wonderful. He does well in school. But we knew and saw already, you know, despite how much love we pour into him, how handsome he is, that, you know, there were insecurities and there were issues with peers. And he's a very soft soul. And he was internalizing some things that peers were saying. And so when we were walking to the appointment, he was very resistant and said, there's nothing wrong with me. Do you guys think something's wrong with me? And I said, no, that's not what therapy is about. It's just like, if you had a toothache, You know, and you went to the dentist, our therapists, our partners, they come alongside us just to talk to us, to work us through. Really, they let us, to allow us to hear ourselves saying what we deeply think out loud, and they guide us through that. And today you could not pull him from his therapist. He absolutely loves and adores her. Through the pandemic, he's continued to have his meetings with her just virtually. And they're the best of buds. And he really, you know, when it's been a while, for whatever reason, if we didn't schedule, he, he will bring it up and say, I think it's time. I need to talk to to her. So I think, yeah, no, we can't completely heal. I've come to realize, I don't think that. 100% healing is possible. That's one way my philosophy has changed. But I do think awareness is very, there's something very beautiful about it, even if it doesn't feel great. And, I just, and you know, maybe there can still be, you know, there's this amount of healing in this generation, and then the next generation has less healing to do in the next. So that's kind of where
1: it's a more long
0: term vision that I have now towards healing.
1: That's wonderful. Does that throw a wrench if your child doesn't choose to have children or is it just passing love along
0: it doesn't because i still even though i ended up changing my mind and becoming a mom i'm still very much a proponent of choice and you know not every person needs to become a parent and that's their prerogative and their decision so even if it's not my son who has children i have you know nephews who might have children there's extended family so we can cause trauma not only on our blood family but on our our friends and neighbors and other loved ones so family then can take on a much larger context
1: i'm curious you mentioned just now that you don't believe in the concept of healing fully necessarily in this generation and i was curious about how the process of writing the book could be healing for you and how it could be healing for your family in general. And I was wondering if you could give me more context about that. Do you feel like the people who are close to you and your family, are they grateful for having their stories told? Do you feel less burdened after having put this all out?
0: Yeah, so I'll start with me. For me, because storytelling is what I love and what I do, there is something very healing just about the process of putting words on the page. And then especially about the process of crafting those words into something and attempting to make them as, as beautiful as you can. So that process, you know, knowing that I went through that, the process of going through that was very, very affirming for me, was very healing for me. And then, you know, letting it go, be out there, because once it's out there, it's no longer really yours. So there was something that was very liberating about that, because I had, a, there are things in, in the book that I've done that, I'm, that I was deeply ashamed of. And so the shame in that instance turned to just embracing myself more fully and still having the regret, but not the shame. So there was definitely liberation. There was healing just through the process of doing this as a creative. In terms of family, it it varies. You know, my husband has read the book. It was a wonderful, I won't say wonderful, that's the wrong word, but it it definitely opened up some doors for him in terms of looking at his own family and some of the the unhealing (laughs) that needs to even Just be looked at. So we've had lots of conversations. My ex-husband has read the book and you know was positive as well. An (laughs) ex-lover has read the book and got back to me about he thought that it was it hit the right notes. I think is what he said. My mom said that she thought it was very healing. But although she said when she was reading it, she would sometimes forget that it was her daughter. She just was absorbed into it. She's a wonderful. She loves to read that, and that's where I fell in love with reading, just watching her read. But she would just forget that it was her daughter and just was absorbed in the story. And one of the things that she said was that finally, maybe, you know, through your speaking up, you were always so quiet. By reading this, see the impact of all these things and how they, the impact that they had on you. And she said, what this really is to me is the weaving together of all these stored up memories and events. And she said that she thought it was healing and that more healing could be done. I do know that it's been that also for a couple of other cousins, my little sister. And then on the flip side, it hasn't been that for other, other family members. There was one family member for sure who was embarrassed by the two to three lines where I mentioned that there inc- or there had been incest in the family. And she felt that I didn't have a right to talk about that because it wasn't my father who did it. So yeah, definitely a mixed bag. I hope that one day, you know, even with that relative, there can be a conversation. I have no idea personally, you know, if it's been something that opened up any sort of um, additional healing for her or maybe additional pain. I'm not sure because we haven't had a personal conversation yet. But those are the experiences that I know about.
1: It's really wonderful to hear about your mother's experience in particular. I know just from personal experience, I have a lot of loved ones who have caused me harm. And that's in your book. You still love your mother. And I feel like if if I wrote that down for my loved ones, (laughs) they'd be kind of angry. So I was wondering, and maybe you can't speak for your mother on this, but do you think that facing that is helpful for people and can help with the healing process too? facing harm they might have perpetuated?
0: You know, it depends on the person. I, My mom and I haven't seen each other face-to-face since the book came out because of the pandemic. By now, I would have gone to visit. She's in Florida now, and I hope to do so. Florida's numbers have been, just as you know, horrible with COVID. But I'm hoping that we'll make our usual annual trip this, this holiday. So, you know, in person... I don't know how it's going to be different or what else can come up. We've had long conversations on the phone since the book came out. She's not, and she's come to a lot of the virtual, you know, readings and panel discussions. She's very supportive and very proud. But I'm sure that there are other parts of her, you know, that she hasn't been able to to share. She hasn't specifically said anything like, anything personal about any of the scenes in the book that involved her, I should say. Um, It's been more of a kind of general talk about the premise and family, but that's, that's my mom. (laughs) So in person, it would be nice to talk, sit down face to face and maybe, and not in a rehashing way. And it's not, that wasn't the purpose of the book. To rehash just, it wasn't a sort of pointing fingers book. It was looking at the patterns and how all these patterns connect. And I think she, she definitely gets that. So in her case, I give props to her because there hasn't been, or at least she hasn't said to me, any sort of, you know, anger or why did you say that or why did you do that? And I really tried as I was writing the book to write with tenderness and with love, even when it was something that might, might not have been completely likable, that love and that tenderness was still there. And I hope that for family members truly reading the book that that shines through.
1: Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit to the macro story of your family. You talked a little bit in your summary about your relationship to Bert, who was your great grandfather for listeners. And You touched upon this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more about how it seemed throughout the book that this was your aim to find Burt's story. This was a process of finding Burt's story. Throughout the book, there was a theme where you would tell people he was lynched and it would kind of be dismissed. And to me, it read very much like this is what you wanted to say, but it ends up being so much more than just Burt's story. And so I'm wondering how all of this, how motherhood, how losing your virginity at some points, your first divorce, like how that relates back to Bert and his his micro story.
0: Mm, I think when I think about Bert now, it is about potential. When I looked at the etymology of his name, the name, first of all, Bridges. For me, as a metaphor, was just huge. But then the name Bert—I think originally from the German language—means something like honor, or it's a nickname for, for for someone who is supposed to live out his obligations. And it means light. You know, I think we all come with that seed of potential and light and. Dreams and hopes, things that that we want to live out, and unfortunately, my my great grandmother would always say that he was so proud. She didn't want to talk about him because it was so painful. But the few things that she would say through the generations or or through the years was that he was this really strong, proud man. And so for me, I can cling on to that. This is someone that I feel very proud of, even though he's an ancestor that I never met. That he was that he was proud, and apparently so seemingly threatening that they had to lynch him to kill that potential that they saw. So when I think about him, I think about how beautiful and how strong and and proud and full of potential that he was. And then on the flip side of that, how devastating it is that it was cut short. He was a very young man. And that we have a responsibility to dig out, if we've lost it, our connection to our own light and our own potential and our own obligations. And all of us have failed at some points along the way, trying to do that. And I see that repeated throughout the family, but as long as we have breath, it's not too late. And I think Bert's story is a reminder of that.
1: That's wonderful. (laughs) That's so beautiful. I guess I have a technical question about Bert, which I also feel like you've kind of already addressed, but throughout the story, you talk about trying to get more information on both Bert and Mary and, about how their stories have been lost. But you do a really great job of giving us something. But I'm wondering how much of that is speculation and creative versus how much you were able to attach from stories from your family or from records. Yeah, I don't have like
0: a percentage breakdown, but definitely all of that. And I really wanted to look at the impact that that those gaps have on this one particular family and how that reverberates throughout throughout time. A lot of the research that I did was around that time frame, 1904, you know, looking at that particular county and the surrounding counties. I looked at tons of old newspapers around that time. I looked at what music was being produced, what what sort of songs were written, poetry, what kind of art was being produced, what books, because I wanted to contrast all of that knowingness and beauty with all of this lost History. I did hire in 2018 a well-known. She's very elderly now, but she was, she took me on a Mississippi researcher because this happened. This all happened. The lynching happened in Mississippi. So she dug and dug, and I wasn't able to afford a really long, extensive hire. But she worked for a few months, and we believe that she found the same Burt Bridges. That's not in this project. It was, but my editors and I agree with them um, for this particular project. Ended up editing that out, and that can be something that's later, they really wanted to frame it within you know, where it's framed. <laughs> so, and that would have been projecting too far in the future because this happened in 2018. I actually went, I was in New Orleans in 2018. I looked up Holmesville, Mississippi, saw that it was just a two hour drive while my son and husband were sleeping. I got up early that morning. I drove there. I walked around the cemetery. There's just a lot of sensory details that I have. I have Jan's, you know, material. She found a 1900 US census report that, It has a Burt Bridges on it, probably the same Burt Bridges we think. So I have, you know, the names of siblings, the mother and father and nothing after that, some potential, you know, some second and third cousins. I was on Ancestry.com. I've been in touch with some probably some distant cousins. And we know we are distant because we all did the DNA test. And that all points back to the Bridges family. I talked to one lady who lives in Michigan. And so we're on Facebook now. We call each other cousin, probably fourth cousin through our DNA test, but it's definitely on the Bridges side. And no one that we've talked to so far, though, has that that family, that particular lynching family story passed down. But at least Jan was able to to find him. There are lots of newspaper clippings, of course, of lynchings around that time. A lot of them are named and then a lot of them are unknown. So I'm assuming that maybe he was one of the unknown little blurbs. In a newspaper, what she was able to find was uh, more of was what happened to Mary after Burt was lynched, which is that she was married off to that distant cousin, John Buckley, and they moved. John, actually, there's some bit of family lore about him that he ended up killing a white man who... They'd gotten into a fight, he was defending himself, he killed him, and that they had to leave Mississippi in the middle of the night, went to Mexico, hid out there for a while before making their way back into the States, which was Louisiana, never went back to Mississippi, so it's just like <laughs> all of these pieces that, that aren't in this book. But definitely a lot of research and a lot of speculation and conjecture and a lot of looking at ephemera around that time.
1: Wow. Now I wanna read John's story. That's like <laughs> no, it's, it's like not only did he yeah, he actually killed someone.
0: I'm like, what was it about Mary that she was? <laughs> but oh, then Mary. again. It was the time that that they were living in, right? And my mom said that she talked to a cousin, and again, yeah, some cousins are like super proud. But anyway, she talked to a cousin who met a man—I don't know when—but a, a white man at a store, and he said, "I know who you are." My—I don't know if it was his great grandfather. He said, "Your your what was her step step great grandfather John Buckley is killed my." My great grandfather. So that story is definitely true. And she, they're in Walmart or something in this small town in Louisiana. He knows who he heard her say her name or whatever to her full name, and he said, "Are you related to these Buckleys?" And she said, "Yes." And he said, "He killed my great grandfather." And he said, "But it was in it was self defense, and no one ever knew what happened to him." So there's definitely lots of other stories. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I feel like you have a whole treasure trove. <laughs> yeah. I want to touch a little bit on this idea that you present really early in the book about ancestral trauma and its physical effects on you. And it reminded me a lot of this kind of new science coming out about epigenetics. And I was wondering if when writing the book, you had that in mind or if you were referring more to a cultural trauma. If you had been removed from your family in some way, do you think that these effects would have still affected you in a physical manner? Mm, that's very
0: interesting. I hadn't thought of of that perspective. I mean, according to the science, you def- that definitely can happen. I was really just looking at, you know, my physical ailments and mysterious ailments, really since childhood, I've carried around a lot of fear in the body. And these are things that I felt before, you know, learning about epigenetics and learning later as a professional about ACEs first childhood. So I, I knew that there were, you know, I've been sickly at times as a child, I always had terrible knots in my stomach. And those were things that I would feel, you know, even as an adult when I was in a stressful situation. My mom, like I said, she talks a lot about what happened in the past. She said that my father, you know, beat her with his fists, uh, pounded his fists into her back while she was pregnant with me. And that she felt me move and the twisting. So a lot of that as a writer, I think becomes metaphor. But I also was very much, it's me. The character that I'm writing is me. (laughs) And I know what I feel Inside my body, so a lot of the fear I think I associate with the intestines and the knots in the stomach, and you know, just just fear of my own voice, and then the the skin issues that I started just looking at it again, even before I learned about epigenetics, just looking at it as a metaphor. What are these mysterious skin elements? deep, deep fatigue that I went to five or six different doctors about. And I started as I was, it was a way, and you know, I was journaling about what I was going through and all these dietary changes that I was trying to make to improve my health. And I just think that as a writer is one of the ways that I tried to make sense of it was by using it as a metaphor to look at my life, my family's life the different sicknesses in my family. So that's just kind of how my brain works. And then when I read those first articles, where, wherever I was about epigenetics, I was like, yes, it makes sense. And we've known it for so long. Our bodies have known it. I remember the old women talking about, I, I don't know. I think there was just always this, this knowing that we're not disconnected from those who came before us, whether it's something simple like, the way a kid walks, even if that kid has never met his father, never seen his father, and somehow still has the same gait, still has the same voice. My family is definitely a lot of supernatural things have happened. So there's it's a family that believes in dreams and visions. So those things just always seemed palpable and possible to me.
1: I feel like, and I don't know how much of it is metaphor, but I feel like there are some sort of metaphorical, supernatural elements to your story in terms of ancestors and carrying the personification of the people that we've had. What is your relationship to all of that? Is it kind of supernatural for you? Is it a little bit holy? Yeah, great question. I think I'm more practical in the family.
0: <laughs> I, I, I don't, I do have deep dreams. But I haven't had the visions that lots of family members have had, out-of-body experiences. But that I grew up with that, so it doesn't seem strange. It doesn't seem out of the box. It's just that I exist on another plane, but I very much understand and respect and believe that family members have experienced the things that they say they've experienced and continue to. My mother very much is an empath and has had a lot of out-of-body experiences. My uncle, junior, that I write about, my sister, my youngest sister. So I, I feel like I, I exist on this, in this kind of, you know, on the soil, rounded reality world. But I'm also, I'm open to that supernatural part because that's part of my family heritage.
1: Did you knowingly tie that in? Or is is your relationship to ancestors as they show up as figures in your book, is that something different for you?
0: Oh, yeah. You know, I think I knowingly tapped into it, I would say. You know, and the more I tapped into it, the more, not visions while I was awake, but dreams. I do have very vivid dreams. And especially if I'm in a place where I'm open to it, I'm journaling. If I write down those dreams as soon as I wake up, then it seems it's like they're faithful. They come the next night. I started going to cemeteries. So I was definitely and walking around and looking for tombstones that were dated around the same time. That Burt was Burt was lynched. So I was definitely opening up some some channels. So that's why I kind of I do feel like kind of in those in between worlds where I can be in this one and I'm more comfortable in this one. But I pushed, or if I want to, I can definitely dip into that. So I would say, yeah, definitely dreams. My family stories and then going to places like cemeteries and looking at, you know, antiques, just opening up all of those little channels. And then language was another way, another gateway to just let what I was hearing come through the pen.
1: Alright, I have one last question to you. It might seem a little bit disconnected, but you talk a little bit about how you've been told that you're the rock, you're like the oldest sister. But in reality, you don't feel necessarily like a rock, you you talk about shaking all the time. And to me, that really played into something I hear a lot of black women talking about in terms of being stereotyped as the strong black woman. And I was wondering if there is a relationship there and if you have thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of daughters and oldest daughters, that that transcends race sometimes, you know, in terms of how much expectations we put on those our girls that often are not the same expectations that we put on our sons. So there was that. And then... Then being black on top of that, growing up poor, after the divorce, my mom struggled so much. So we moved back in with her parents, but my grandparents were on a tiny fixed income. I remember their little checks for like, I don't know, three, $400 a month. And this was in the 80s. And my mom was working for the federal government, but it was definitely beneath the poverty income level for a long time. So I think because she was so burdened, she needed me or she needed someone Support her, and I was responsible, I was quiet, I was the, the eldest. So, definitely, and she said this herself there were more expectations put on me, and my sister was just a year and a half younger than we should have had. My mom probably couldn't relate as much because she's the youngest. Her brothers took care of her, so she didn't get the resentment. She didn't understand why I didn't want to, you know, spend another weekend doing laundry for not just myself, but all of the siblings and family, or cooking a meal, hot meal, homemade meal, like that, giving my brothers a bath. I wanted, to, especially once those teenage years hit, to be out having fun, like I imagined all the other kids doing, going to dances, etc. cetera. So that, that was way too much, but also she was under a lot of pressure. That was way too much for her. So I carried that mentality of being... The oldest and trying to take care of everything and being responsible out into the workforce into college first and then into the workforce where even today I struggle with being overwhelmed and knowing how to rest, how to say no, how to fail and, and, and be okay with that. I definitely think those are issues that we need to continue to to look at and improve in this country.
1: Well, thank you. I just want to say that those are all my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
0: This has been great, Harmony. No, these have been great questions that I'm going to be thinking a lot about after our talk. So thank
1: you. Thank you. And I just wanted to thank you on air for writing your book. I know that I got a lot out of it and it's made me think about my own life and my own family history. So I bet other readers will as well. And I think that it can have a lot of great potential for healing.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I love the name Harmony because ultimately that's what we're all looking for.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> love it. <laughs> if listeners want to find you how can they and how can they purchase your book oh thank you so
0: much so they can find me at cassandra and i have a lot of different links on there to purchase the book i love when people support their local bookstores but all the other um, big links are on there as well and i'm on social media i'm on twitter at cass lane rights i'm on instagram cassandra lane and facebook
1: All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Cassandra. Thank you, Harmony. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website RebelGirlsBook.club and clicking Read Along with the Show. You can follow us at RGBC on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media podcasts.